1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to be looking this morning at verse 16, but I would like to begin reading with verse 14. Now remember, Timothy, the young pastor, is being left by Paul as Paul goes to Macedonia, and Timothy is to pastor this flock established by God through the instrumentality of the Apostle Paul, and in Acts chapter 20, he warned that from within and from without, they were going to deal with stresses and strains and ravenous wolves. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy, we must be concerned about true teaching and we must oppose as pastors false doctrine. And these epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, in the order in which they were written, are epistles that say to the church, we are to be concerned with passing down the truth from one generation to the next. So let us pray briefly, and then we will read this portion of God's Word. Our Father, this gospel is for sinners. Thank God. You did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And each of us here is a sinner in need of your grace. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, who came into this world to save us, that each person here will leave today saved from his sin, looking forward to that heavenly hope, the coming of Christ and the eternal state. And if there are those among your people today who observe us worshiping, who cannot worship from the heart because they know you not, we pray that the Spirit of God would save them. Bless that your people will be built up in the most holy faith, for we ask it in the name of Christ, the Lord Jesus, the only Redeemer and Savior of sinners. Amen. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Now here is our text. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Thus far, the reading of the Word of God. Now, do you see the connection? Here we come upon this verse that tells us about Christ and the gospel manifested in the flesh, taken up in glory. But do you see the connection to what we have been studying in 1 Timothy up to this point? You see, we've been looking at this epistle and we've seen elders and deacons and the household of God and the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth in verse 15. And then all of a sudden, verse 16, we have this summary of the gospel. Does that seem odd to you? Well, if it does, it really shouldn't. Because, you see, we should never think that our talk about church and pastors and preaching and teaching and elders and deacons and discipline and order in the church, we should never think that these things are somehow about something other than Christ and His gospel. No, not at all. What is the essence of the truth that we are to preach? It is found in verse 16. But how is that truth to go forth in the world if not through well-organized, well-disciplined local churches, local bodies. And so the connection is simply this. The Apostle Paul has been dwelling upon government in the church, 
because without that government, the gospel will not go forward. Now, we need to re-institute re this in the church. We need to understand this again in the church. We need to grasp this. Because the tendency is for people to think, oh, all of this talk about church government is really not so important. We need to talk about the gospel. Paul's point is, if you do not have a well-organized, well-disciplined local church, there will be no gospel to proclaim. The gospel comes through churches that are concerned with these very things. Indeed, as we go on, we see the secret that is revealed about Christ produces godliness, and we as a body confess it. Confessedly, or by common confession, you see, he says in verse 16, great indeed, we confess. It is the confession of the church, this gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 16 may have been an early creed that was recited in the context of worship, just as we have recited the Apostles' Creed together, or sometimes the Nicene. Or perhaps it was sung. There are those who think that this verse was an early hymn that was sung, and Paul is quoting uh, some of that hymn in verse 16. The Greek New Testament, as they are now published, and most English versions also, show the six verbs one on each line, each of them errors passives, lined out as a hymn. So it was either a creed or it was a hymn or perhaps both. And these are the basics. The Apostle Paul is giving to us the bottom line about what the gospel is all about. We never mature beyond these things. We need always to hear them. We need always to revel in them. We need to have lives that are determined and formed by these basics. And so he gives us these six truths in verse 16. Now, there's a little word, chi, that can mean and or even or also or indeed, that in this instance is probably emphatic. In other words, he's been talking about elders, he's been talking about deacons, and then we come to verse 16 and he's saying something like, and great indeed is the mystery of godliness. Uh, or perhaps as it is translated here in the ESV, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We were talking about church government, now let's talk about the gospel that the church is to be concerned with promulgating in the wor world. This word great, actually, I think is uh, perhaps important here for a variety of reasons. Here in verse 16, great indeed, well, this gospel is certainly great, is it not? That is, it is of preeminent import. It is sublime. It is truly wonderful. But also, do you remember what is being confessed in Ephesus at this time by the pagans? Well, they're worshipers of Diana. And all you have to do is to remember your church history, go back into the book of Acts in chapter 19, as the apostle Paul is threatened, his life is threatened, and in Acts 19, as the whole city gathers together because the silversmiths have been concerned that their little statuettes of Diana, uh, that their livelihood is being threatened because the gospel is being preached, they gather the city together in the amphitheater and they're out for blood. They want the apostle Paul dead. And do you remember what they cry? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Great is Diana of the Ephesians, or Artemis, some translations say. Great. Now, the Apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, who is pastoring in that very city, 
in the midst of that very paganism, says, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) Not great is Diana. Great is the mystery of godliness. Great is Jesus Christ. Great is his gospel. Great is what he has done for us sinners. Do you see it that way, by the way? Do you see the gospel as truly great? Is this something that you hear so often to you, it's become just something you hear? Or do you always revel and thrill in the hearing of this good news? Great is the mystery of godliness, the mystery that makes us godly, that brings about godliness. So we have these six truths. Let's look at them. Here in verse 16, first, he was manifested in the flesh. Well, that's Christmas, isn't it? Christ was manifested in the flesh. Paul uses that language similarly in Romans 1 and Galatians 4. The point is he is not created, he is manifested. He is the pre-incarnate Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. The Son assumed human nature in order to save us fallen sinners. As the Apostle says in verse 15 of chapter 1, this is a trustworthy saying deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what he's saying here. He was manifested in the flesh. In other words, this is that great theological mystery of the incarnation of our Lord. This is that of which John spoke in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It is the incarnation of the Son of God. It is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, assuming human nature in order that he might pay the penalty for our sins. Think of it. Two natures infinitely distinct, God and man, the creator-creature distinction, and yet the Son of God assumes human nature. The eternal was made in time. The infinite became finite. The immortal, mortal, while continuing eternal, infinite, and immortal. Must we not admire the divine wisdom in this? He did not cease to be who he had always been, but he assumed human nature and became what he was not. Let me ask you the question. Are you delighting in this at this moment? Are you enjoying what you are hearing? We really should. I enjoy Christmas myself. I think it's a wonderful thing. The most wondrous thing that the Son of God came into this world in order to pay the price of my awful, awful, hell-deserving sins I don't know what you think about it, but I hope you agree. We should always think of Christmas with amazement, the manifestation of the Son of God in the flesh. One of the church fathers said, It is rashness to search too far into it. It is piety to believe it. It is life eternal to know it. And we can never have a full comprehension of it until we come to enjoy it. I hope you enjoy it. There is great joy here. There sitteth in our flesh upon the throne of light, one of a human mother born in perfect Godhead bright. Forever God, forever man, my Jesus shall endure, and fixed on him my hope remains eternally secure. All because of the incarnation of our Lord. God took our nature. Think of how he has lifted us up, that he has saved us, that he knows you. 
that he understands you. He assumed your very nature. And to this, we must add, where can we find a greater example of what love is all about but here? It is condescending love from first to last to consider that the eternal Son of God came into this world to save us sinners, that he was manifest in the flesh. So very obviously, in that opening line of that first hymn that was sung in the early church, he was manifested in the flesh, it was intended that you think he was born, he lived, he died, and he rose from the dead. That is the point of the next line. He was manifest in the flesh, look at it in verse 16, vindicated by the Spirit. That's the resurrection. Now the word vindicated here is the same word that is used for our justification. Justification means that we sinners are acceptable to God through the righteousness of Christ alone, imputed to our account and received by faith alone. We add nothing to it. We bring nothing to it. We are accepted in the presence of God's judgment hall, completely accepted on the basis of what Christ has done for us sinners. So why is the word used here? Uh, what does it mean here? Well, his claim to be the promised Messiah is vindicated by his resurrection from the dead that was accomplished through the Holy Spirit, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, as we read in Romans 8. 11. But I think there's something more. It's not only that his work is vindicated, that his sonship is declared. That's true. But I think there's more here than that. You see, Christ as the last Adam took the sins of his people, our sins, upon himself. He identified with us and as our substitute he was made sin. He bore our guilt on the cross And had he remained in the power of death, that would call into question the victory of the cross. He took our verdict of condemnation. What then is the resurrection of Jesus? It is the removal of the verdict of condemnation. As Gerhardus Voss says it, God, through suspending the forces of death operating on him, declared that the ultimate, the supreme consequence of sin had reached its termination. In other words... Resurrection had annulled the sentence of condemnation. That's the point of Romans 4.25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Jesus' resurrection is the justification of the one who bore our sins. He took our condemnation, but in his resurrection is declared free from that condemnation that he bore in order that you, trusting in him, might be declared free from condemnation because of what he achieved for you. Oh, there's a lot in that line, isn't there? Vindicated by the Spirit, Jesus Christ really rose from the dead in order that you might be justified in God's court of law. But then we read on in the hymn, he was seen by angels. Look at it. He was manifested in the Spirit, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Angels witnessed the birth of Christ. Hebrews 1.6, let all God's angels worship him as directed toward Christ. 
They were there at his temptation. They comforted him in Gethsemane. But the emphasis here, I don't think, is on his temptation or Gethsemane. The emphasis here is on his resurrection from the dead. All the other uses of this verb in this form, was seen, as they are referenced to Jesus in the New Testament, refer to his resurrection from the dead. It is very clear that seen by angels is pointing to the angelic presence there at his resurrection on the third day. Now contemplate this, will you? That angels sang their sanctus to Christ from eternity. The angels sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The angels saw him live. The angels saw him suffer. The angels saw him die on a cross for the sins of men. And angels were there when he was raised by God's power from the dead. No wonder then that according to the book of Revelation, the angels along with others sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No wonder we are told they sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. No wonder the angels sing in heaven of this glorious one raised from the dead. But I want you to think of this. The angels can sing those glorious words, but the angels cannot sing, you purchased us with your blood. They can sing, oh, how great, how wonderful that you have saved men. How wonderful that we saw you raised on the third day. But only you can sing, he loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't purchase angels. He didn't take on their nature. He took your nature in order to save you from your sins. Angels can sing his praises, but you have privileges angels will never know. Communion with the living God in union with Jesus Christ who shed his blood to make you his child, who rose from the dead to justify you, and who has promised to be your savior for eternity. Angels can't sing about that. But you can. The hymn goes on. Seen by angels, now look. Proclaimed among the nations. Christ was preached, heralded among the nations. What a wonder. He is seen by angels, but men have the privilege of preaching him. What a wonder. Not only Jews, but preached among the nations, the Gentiles, as well as the Jews, hear this message of salvation. Peter on the rooftop in Joppa shows how difficult it was for the Jew to come to understand that the gospel was to be proclaimed to everybody. But that's what Jesus said. After his resurrection, before his ascension, he came to his disciples and therefore to his church And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Much confusion exists today in the church over the mission of the church. What is the church called to be and do? But it's really pretty clear. You go to the Great Commission and there you have it. When William Carey said that he would take the gospel to India, 
another minister stood up in the midst of the association meeting and said, you go and preach the gospel, I will hold the rope. The church is called to preach the gospel. You are not all called to do the actual proclaiming and preaching, though we all are called to bear witness. But we are all called to participate in the proclamation of the gospel, even if that means holding the rope. Some go and preach, others hold the rope by prayer, by giving, by witness where they are. Will you notice this word, proclaimed? or preached, or heralded among the nations. A very important word. For the Lord has ordained the foolishness of preaching to save those who believed. You know, I was gripped from this with this from my youth. And the night I was saved, gathering people around me and teaching the Bible, I just wanted to preach God's Word and teach it. I, and I didn't know anything about the Bible. I would go to downtown Macon and pass out tracts in the seediest part of town, talk with people about the gospel. I remember when Jesus Christ Superstar came to our hometown of Macon, Georgia, and I was so concerned because of the way in which it just was shame, shame in the way in which it represented Jesus. My heart was so overwhelmed with concern for those people going that I stood outside and passed out tracts and spoke a word for Jesus and attempted to preach as well as I could. I remember other times doing similarly. Jewish Christians, I joined with some Jewish Christians in Philadelphia when I was a seminary student, passing out tracts in the Jewish part of Philadelphia. Coldest I've ever been in my life. It was freezing. They would come and walk on the other side of the street to avoid receiving a tract about Jesus. Well, I knew I wanted to preach but I couldn't yet preach. I didn't yet have a congregation, so I did what I could. It was the burden of my heart, and still is. And you think about those disciples after Jesus' death and how they go into the world and they preach the gospel and they are willing to be, to be stoned. They are willing to endure shipwreck. They are willing to be killed for the sake of the gospel. What changed that dejected little group of disciples and made them powerful preachers, proclaimers of the gospel to the nations. Well, it was the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what it was, my friend. You remember Machen's words that I gave you last week? The great weapon with which the disciples of Jesus set out to conquer the world was not a mere comprehension of eternal principles. In other words, a philosophy would never have done it. It was an historical message, an account of something that had recently happened. It was the message, He is risen. This is a fact that must be told. This is the truth that transforms everything. Christ risen from the dead. How can we be silent about that? How can we be silent about that? You know, Paul did this more than anyone going into the world and proclaiming him to the nations. This Paul that hated Christians that murdered them. I love the way A.T. Robertson put it when he spoke of his meeting Jesus, the risen Christ on the Damascus Road. Robertson said it was a violent revulsion in Paul's whole nature when he looked into the face of the risen Christ 
It was the supreme test of his life, like a collision of a steel train. He was going at full speed against Christ and was abruptly halted. Paul was never the same. Now let me ask you the question. Have you seen the risen Christ? I don't mean in the same way in which Paul did. I don't mean with your eyes. But in the gospel message, does this gospel message speak to your heart savingly? Have you by faith met the risen Christ? Have you? This is a message that must be told. But going on, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, you see here in verse 16, believed on in the world. And the wonder of this, he's believed on by the very sinners that need the Savior. In Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus says, go disciple the nations. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out by the ascended Christ, forming the church into a missionary church. And the church boldly goes forth, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Why do we support missionaries? This is it. And think of it. 120 people, men and women, in this upper room, The Spirit of God is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And in just a few years, the gospel is preached in places like Athens, that great seat of learning, and Rome, the capital of the world, that wicked city. And what was the great battering ram against the gates of hell? Was it not the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ risen from the dead? And if we are not so zealous in taking the gospel out into our community, what must be the reason? Is it not that we are not so captivated as were they with the ground-shaking truth of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? I really wish I could get this through. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is ground-shaking. I mean, the very earth should tremble under our feet as we consider that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. That the new heavens and new earth have actually entered into time in the person of Jesus for those who believe in him. That everything is new and different because Christ rose from the dead. And we have allowed ourselves to see it as commonplace or have allowed ourselves to become obsequious when our culture says, be tolerance. But I'm sorry, how can we love men and women lost and dead in trespasses and sins and not tell them that Jesus rose from the dead believed on in the world? Do you find encouragement here? As we see so little response to the gospel sometimes, and our nation and the world devolving into barbarism, Jesus was, is, and will be believed on in the world. Amazing, because no man can create faith, yet Christ is believed on in the world. What can account for that? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, 
For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is only one thing that can account for his being believed on in the world. And that is, this resurrected Christ poured out his spirit, and his spirit is at work taking this good news and applying it to life after life and soul after soul and heart after heart, drawing from this world his own people. Believed on in the world. Are you among those who believe on him? Have you heard the gospel? Are you among those who have in this world believed on Christ? If not, why not? What's keeping you from it? Well, it's your sin. It was true of all of us who did not come to know him. Until we did, because he spoke his word to our hearts. I want to plead with you. I know only God can save the heart, but I also believed proclaimed in the world means that he uses his preaching in the powerful hand of the Holy Spirit to open hearts. I want to ask you again, have you believed on Christ? Not only do you have intellectual assent, have you given your life to Christ in faith? Have you trusted him for the salvation that only he can give? I plead with you. Paul tells me to do that in 2 Corinthians 5. The love of Christ constrains me, he said. He persuades men. Let me do all within my power, knowing that only God's power can make it effectual in your heart. Let me do all that I can in my power to persuade you to come to Jesus. No matter where you are in this building, if you hear this message of Jesus Christ manifest in the flesh, who has been raised from the dead, vindicated in the Spirit, and now you hear him proclaimed in the world, will you now be one of those who believe on him? Will you believe on Christ? I press it with everything that I have within my soul. You are lost and undone apart from Christ. You need a Savior, and your philosophy cannot save. Your good works cannot save. Religion cannot save. And no, you can't coexist. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's his claim. And so I ask you, have you trusted in Christ? Will you? At this moment, right where you are, trust in Christ, believed on in the world. And then the text says, the last line of the hymn, taken up in glory, taken up in glory. This is Jesus' ascension. Having been manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, and having given the pre-ascension mandate to proclaim the gospel, the Lord ascended in glory. He was taken up, the text says. Hendrickson says it beautifully. While the echo of men's voices, crucify, crucify, had scarcely died, heaven opened wide its portals, and upon receiving back its victorious king, resounding with the echoes of the jubilant anthem, sung by ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands and thousands and thousands, worthy is the Lamb. Truly, he was taken up 
in glory. And he's saying this to Timothy, the young pastor. He's writing directly to this young pastor. And he's saying, Timothy, he was believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Why does he say that to this young man, Timothy? Because Timothy's in a hard spot. It's hard to pastor people. It's hard to be a godly man. It's hard to study the scriptures. It's hard to preach the word. It's hard to be a man of prayer. It's hard to live in a pagan world and to help your people be godly in the midst of that paganism. All right, Timothy, here's your encouragement. Christ came. He died. He rose from the dead. We have a mandate from him. Go, take it. People are going to believe. And you know what else? This risen Lord ascended on high, and there he sits, regnant. And in power, he's going to achieve and accomplish his purpose. Timothy, yeah, it's hard. You might even lose your life, but you just keep doing what you're called to do. Taken up in glory, glory, that means radiance, brightness, splendor, particularly the glory and the sublime majesty of the living and true God. The meaning here is, of, uh, we read it in Philippians 2. We read it in Ephesians 1. Listen to the words in Ephesians. In chapter 1, beginning around verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. And he put all things under his foot, feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. That's glory. That's glory. Christ is exalted and given as mediator all authority in heaven and on earth. So the entire theological basis for everything that Paul writes to this pastor and to the church about worship and order and elders and deacons and preaching and teaching, the whole theological foundation is this, Christ was taken up in glory. The book of Hebrews is all about this. Hebrews takes us to the vertiginous heights and shows us that Jesus now sits on the right hand of the throne of the majesty on high, the place of power from which he reigns, the place of reward from which position no one can take from him his purchased people, the place of completion demonstrating that the atonement is completed once for all, and the place of the intercession of Jesus for his saints, for his people. But you know, I'm convinced of something else. The very word glory here would not only say to them, ascension, but in the early church to hear the word glory would bring something else to mind. You know what it is? Sure you do. It's the return of Christ, isn't it? For do we not read in Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne? (laughs) He went up, taken up in glory. But he's going to come again in glory. Well, I have a bunch of applications. I can't bring them all. Let me give you three. One, if you will get this truth way down deep in your heart, believer, you'll be a godly man or woman. 
say, how do you know that, Pastor? Because it says so. Look, verse 16, great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Right? So people tend to think, well, there's teaching, there's doctrine, it's all over here, then there's practical living. That's really where I'm at. You'll never live a practical Christian life if you don't have as its basis this truth. Second point, amazement. I think when you sing a hymn like this, see it printed out, read it. And by the way, look at the depth in the hymns in the early church. There are other examples in the New Testament. Look at the depth of this hymnody. It should bring amazement. Now, I will tell you, Paul grips me, and I think the reason that he grips me is because he's so gripped by Christ. But what Paul could never get over is that he had seen the risen Christ. And this gospel summarized here, this gospel of the resurrection determined all of life for him, and it should for us also. I mentioned A.T. Robertson, good quote. No man is qualified to talk about Christ who has not in a real sense seen him face to face. Hmm? So that leads me again to ask, have you seen him? Does this gospel here receive a warm, warm reception by faith in your heart? But then final application. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, how can we read that and not want to witness for Christ? Bring people to worship so that they hear this message. Hand out a gospel tract. Speak some word. I read just this week of someone who mentioned something in passing about Jesus Christ, and God used that as the seed to bring that person to saving faith. You don't know what God will do with your witness. How can we hear this and not witness for Jesus? I can't get over this. I can't get beyond this. I must tell it, and if you really get it in your heart, you must too. So go and bear this six-fold witness to our Savior. Easy way to witness. He was manifest in the flesh. Do you know what that means? He, he was born of a virgin. He obeyed the law. He went to the cross. And you know what else? He was vindicated by the Spirit. Do you know what that means? He was raised from the dead. And there you have it. It's all here for you. Just take it out and speak it. From another preacher, I read this story. <clears throat> and I'm going to bring it to you now as a kind of parable. There was an old church in England. And above the door, imagine one of those old, lovely, gray stone churches. And above the door, chiseled in above the doorway so that everyone could read, we preach Christ crucified. And then over the years... Ivy grew over Christ crucified. And then over the years, Ivy grew over We Preach. 
And then the church closed. The church closed. Need I interpret the parable? Hmm? You get it, don't you? May God bless the preaching of his word.